I used to be a professional editor. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, um, yeah, my editing consisted of adding more things yeah. at one point. No, I, I took things out, but then when we were proofing it and everything, I decided to add more things because it was no, it was there's no reason it couldn't be a little bit longer. And, I found some more material. So. One of the things that was interesting, I did a special reading of it just to make sure there was nothing in it that would offend anyone in my family, not realizing that none of them would actually read. So I, next time, I, I, if I do that, I won't wor worry about that particular edit. You feel like you have another large book in you? Oh, well, I've been working on another book, maybe with more more about music theory in it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know how long it will take to do. Be, or you know, I don't. Want, I'm not in any rush. I spent a long time doing the other ones. So. How long did it take? Well, at least twenty years or something. I mean, a lot of the material was written and then I wasn't constantly working on it, but the last few years when I was getting it ready, I was working on it all, pretty much all the time when I was on tour, whenever I had free time on trains and hotels. So you were working on it off and on. You knew that one day it would actually you well, would publish Well, I mean, it. I published writings yeah. and I had a lot of encouragement to, kind of, to put them together in a book, but I didn't want to just have a kind of a messy anthology i wanted to blend them into a, some kind of a whole thing and um of course uh, i couldn't figure out how to how to put it together just kind of a chronological thing seemed kind of boring i i realized that i most biographies or autobiographies i read unless there's something really fascinating about the early childhood or something i get really like irritated with those parts and i want yeah. to get into the career of whoever it is so i didn't want to do a kind of chronological thing like that but i did some of the stuff that it had published was about junior high and elementary school and stuff so i did want to use that stuff i think it was reading the autobiography of of Lewis Boonwell that gave me the idea he was talking about when he was making certain films and they, he was supposed to like deliver a 65 minute or 70 minute film to this Mexican production company and when they would be short they would just throw in a dream sequence and you could kind of put it anywhere as filler uh, yeah and then um, also um, I was reading a book about Robert Altman and he, he said the same thing yeah. they, they could just put in a dream anywhere if they were trying to connect some things together. Um, I was keeping a dream journal for a long time, and sometimes I would pluck something out of that to uh, publish as part of something I was doing. Or I sometimes used some dreams in a liner note, but I decided to use all these dreams as a kind of a segue between these different sections, and then you start to not know what's a dream and what's reality, and I, I like that yeah. happening, too. Um and then I finally also, when I was in the process of finishing it, I came across some different diaries that I thought uh, it was useful to use the material and actually kind of reprint them. Some of them, like this diary my older brother kept when we were in Europe as children, and, and um, my grandmother's diary the last year she died. I would get to these points where I was stuck, and then that night I would dream something perfect for that segue. So it's almost like then my dreams were working with Interesting. me. On the on the book, it's funny. Essentially, you'd be working on a story, you'd be uh, reminiscing something from your life, and that would spur on a dream that served as some kind of connected tissue for the piece. Or just 
that I'd gone to sleep with this problem in my mind, yeah. and then that kind of something gets conjured up that is useful. Are you a big dream diarist? Is that something that you've done for most of your life? You know, I think dreams are tremendously entertaining, yeah. and sometimes they're kind of enlightening or just weird, but um, the one thing is that if you don't write them down, you're never going to remember them yeah. all. I mean, there's you might remember a few of them, but you not only remember them, they're recorded, but then you see these reoccurring things that you're dreaming about a lot, and you wonder, what the hell? You know, what the hell? I still like to do that, but right now, since I haven't been writing so much, I barely, I haven't remembered to dream yeah. like in months, you know. You almost have to train yourself then to be able to, to do that. Kerouac did a dream book and he had some sort of process that he had, you know, I don't know if it was keeping a, a notebook by the bed. Well, William Burroughs has a good book too, yeah. though, but I don't know if he had any kind of system for it. Or yeah, I assumed you've developed one over time as it became more and more important to the piece. No, I mean, I just tried to make an effort to write them down. Now, I wouldn't get up in the middle of the night and write a dream down. I go with Willie Nelson's songwriting rule. Come up with a song idea in the middle of the night. If it's any good, yeah. you'll remember, remember it in the morning. I would get in the habit of getting up in the morning and writing the, the dream down or typing it into my, you know. People tell me their dreams, and I quite, especially certain people, like my oldest brother or uh, Paul Lovins, a drummer I play with a lot, he'll always tell me dreams where he's trying to set his drums up on stage and something stupid's happening. So I collect, collected these kinds of dreams, like an oboe player um, that I work with just wrote me a, let, a note that said she dreamt that he, she and I were in a band led by David Lee Roth. You know, so I mean, and I w I'm putting all these new dreams in my new book. Does the new piece pick up where the last one left off? Well, no, not real. No, I think you know the the first book begins and ends in the same. It begins with us on a family vacation in Europe, and it ends there too. And then all this other stuff happens. You know, I do go back to that setting at the end, and then particularly haunting memory. But um, I think the new the new one. I mean, I don't know. I won't really know how I'm beginning it until it's actually being published. But um. What I'm working on now, I mean, it's it's some of the similar material. Like I was reading tonight, it starts off with these guys I played music with in high school, and I think we're going to see Spirit play in, yeah. in Denver or something. One of the things I wanted to do was write down as much as I could remember about concerts I'd seen. You were documenting your formative years in music. That was the, the development of it. Were you jogging your memory early on and a, de a book developed out of it? Well, I just was looking for various, uh, you know, these ver uh, the latest series of writings, you know, that were in this. I mean, there was a lot of material I wrote as a teenager, yeah. you know, I tried to write books. And I could remember a lot of what I wrote about, so I tried to recreate it, right, you know. Forced Exposure magazine, they published a lot of what the material I was reading tonight about, but it's very fleshed out, but that basically the stuff about all the bands I was in starting in, in junior high you know, or elementary school. So they published a piece. I had a lot of writing about East Germany published, first in a West German rock and roll magazine, and then the Wayne State Press put out a whole like chapbook about East Germany. So all that material is included. I tried to just include everything I'd written. Now, another set of writings that I'm going to put in the new book that aren't in this is all the columns I wrote for Maximum Rock and Roll. I'd like to include them in this new book. Must be an interesting exercise in, in and of itself to go back and look at the stuff that you wrote so many years ago. I mean, I assume that you've developed quite a bit as both a writer and a human being since then. I did these monthly columns for rock and roll, for Maximum Rock and Roll. 
I don't really remember them all that much, but we found them all in the basement. And um, somebody had wisely put them in like a sealed plastic container so they survived the house fire. Yeah, I haven't really looked at all of them. What I remember from the time was uh, I got the most angry nail writing a column about dr legalizing drugs. In maximum rock and roll of all places. Yeah, but the straight edge crowd didn't I like see. that. But I thought, well, they can be straight edge, but they don't have to arrest people that aren't. Yeah. That's kind of vicious. That seems like a, an interesting fit. How did you end up at Maximum Rock and Roll? I mean, it's a, it's a punk scene. Editor, Tim Yohannan, was an older man. Yeah. He was really interested in having a lot of diverse opinions. I even tried to get my father-in-law a column in there because he was like a peace activist that worked with yeah. Daniel Berrigan and everything. But they really never could connect, I guess. Punks and the hippies famously don't get along. No, but um, I was allowed yeah. to write about any topic I wanted, you know. And then, but then when Tim died, they I mean, I'm not sure they even still published that magazine, but they, they, stopped, they didn't I think want it's a around. column anymore. You've ended up at a lot of, you know, odd collaborations over the years. I found out about you originally. I was at school in Santa Cruz. Okay. So it was... I've collaborated with a lot of people from Santa Cruz. That's funny. Probably Camper. How did you hook up with that crew? That was pretty easy. Uh, they were opening a show for me in, yeah. in San Francisco. They asked, they said, would you play on Careful of That Axe, Eugene? You know, I hit it off with them. I thought they were really nice and lots of fun. Yeah, yeah no, we did several shows together. By that time, I was immersed in this relationship with this record label where the guy was giving me the money to produce these recording sessions with different bands. And we've been doing pretty well with them, really. Like Corpses of Foreign War with the Violent Femmes and then Vermin of the Blues with the Evan Johns and the H-Bombs really sold pretty decently. Camper Van Beethoven, their first album or two, really sold pretty well for an indie thing. I got a budget to do a record with them. I did the Camper Van Chadbourne and they, they really sold a lot of copies yeah. of that, you know, so we worked together a fair bit after that, even as smaller. I mean, they're, they kind of, the original form of the band splintered. They fired the violin player, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, I still had the violin player in my when I would get together with them. At one point, we just had a trio with Victor Krumenacher and Jonathan mm -hmm. and me. So I've had a connection with that for a long time. I still play with Jonathan sometimes. He, he lives in Stockholm. Did, did you ever feel like you were a part of a cohesive scene? You bounced around on different projects, and obviously... The, the things that you've done have sounded incredibly different from piece to piece. I mean, when I was here in New York... What years was it? 78. Yeah. For five years or so. So really sort of the uh, punk days. But, um, yeah, the punk music just yeah. kind of started during then. But um, if, you, if you read kind of historical accounts, and I'm part of this kind of downtown scene or sure. whatever, but it certainly didn't feel like any kind of scene at the time at all. I was kind of always going my own way, basically. We were doing a lot of really noisy music. Some bands started that were kind of combining noisy music with a rock beat. I thought that was really horrible, and I didn't want to be part of that. I did get really interested in country and western music, which I'd always really liked. I started including it in with the improvised music, and partially because I liked it, and also partially because it was irritating the hell out of people. And I've always felt that when you get such a negative reaction, sometimes it really means you're on to something. That's been my impression, you know. Because sometimes I had the really negative reaction, for instance, the first time I heard John Coltrane. So I think that was something that really separated people and drove me out of New York City because none of the musicians like, kind of like, they're all like behind my back. Going, yeah. This is horrible. But when I started traveling around playing that stuff, I realized, oh, I've created my own audience finally. People that like 
weird, noisy, free improv and free jazz and country and western, classic country. There are all these people out there that like both those things and never thought they could have them at the same time. It's like this really cool restaurant I went to in San Antonio where a Chinese guy had married a Mexican woman and they were serving both combination plates. It's a very New York thing too at the same time. I'm from California and that was something that I noticed when I came out here for the first time are all the combination restaurants. And I don't know how much of it is just sort of, I'm, I'm sure part of it's the ethnic melting pot, but at the same time, I think a lot of it just has to do with a, a lack of real estate. Now it's totally common for yeah. bands to mix together all kinds of stuff. Although I, I still think noise and uh, country music is still a pretty relatively rare occurrence. That created kind of more yeah. and more encouragement to do it or figure out ways to do it. And then, of course, I started incorporating rock and we did Shockabilly. And... It's a tough way to build an audience <laughs> to kind of elicit some sort of negative response from people. I mean, that must have taken a lot longer for you to actually build up a, a following. Half of it is looking for the right situation. As far as? Not playing somewhere you really shouldn't be yeah. playing. A stupid job, you know. Find a receptive place, people that are interested. What ended up being the most receptive places early on? Who was, who was most open to this unique combination of music? Still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's always... When you're going on tour, there's sure things, you know, but then also yeah. you're like poking around. It isn't just like any band being on the road looking for like, oh, a rock club or, yeah. you know, or we play this style. I mean, I don't really play a, a, a particular style. I do my own music. It encompasses some different styles. But, I mean, you have to find like a listening room. Yeah. Some places where people, a place where people actually listen to music. And then you have to avoid all these cliques. Like, for instance, I met, you know, just as a kind of a weird example, um, uh, but I think you'll get my point. I, I, I knew this blues harmonica player in Germany was that was from the States. Was, and I'm coming back to the States. Maybe you can give me some tips on what where to play. And I, mean, yeah. I said blues. And he said, yeah. And I goes, why would I know anything about that? And he goes, well, you're going around gigging. I said, they wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole at a blues club. Yeah. I said, they're so prejudiced. I said, likewise, folk. Folk club? A guy can spend a whole year trying to convince someone that runs a folk festival that I'm not going to make the place burn down or something. They're just frightened to death of anything that's... So you have to avoid all these little cliques, the punk rock or the garage rock scene. Same thing, I mean, Shockabilly would play certain places, but there were certain places we should never play because they wanted hardcore punk or nothing. I was trying to play this garage... I'm trying to find a place to play in Las Vegas one time when I was in L.A. because I had a weekend free can fly there for $15 or $20 or something. So it's like, I should go play a gig. I mean, how can I lose? And I'm looking through all these. That was when MySpace was around. So I'm yeah. looking through all these clubs, and there's this, like, garage rock place, that, you know, with pictures of these, like, Satan and stuff. You know, it looks kind of funny. <laughs> so I'm like, I contact the guy, and I'm like, you know, uh, I'm coming in. I want to meet a girlfriend there or something, you know. I gave him some spiel. I said, I can play a gig on the weekend for the door, you know, or whatever. You know, I'm just going to be there anyway, and I'd, I'd like to find a place to play. And the guy writes me back, and he goes, uh, not only can you not, would no one come to see you, no one would ever come here again if I booked either. So, and this is just, this was a place with garage rock. I knew I could go in there and play a set of garage rock. There's no question. I probably know more songs than the bands that play there. Nice. Yeah, they're just incredibly prejudiced because it's, to them, they don't understand. It's outside the norm of the genre. So you have to kind of avoid all that kind of thing. Were you going out of your way, though, to, to sort of tailor that to the specific venue? Like you said, you could do Garage Rock. You did, you did the set tonight, and you know you were talking about the early days of you forming bands and records from the 60s, and you opened up with, uh, what was that, a B-part song and uh, Love and Spoonful? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you're somewhat malleable when it comes to the music that you're playing. It's just as long as you're able to get an audience from it. The difficult thing is that with the venues and the narrow-mindedness yeah. of it, because in most cases, if I get out in front of an audience, I can do something they're going to like. Has it gotten harder? Has it gotten easier over the years? I mean, you know, these days when it comes to... I know you're, you're playing a handful of gigs here in, uh, in the city, but when it comes to actually setting out on doing a, a tour. Some things get harder and some things get easier. Yeah. Some places where there was never a lot of live music are like full of it now, like Brooklyn. Also, I can drive up and down the highway like looking at signs and say, oh, there used to be a, a yearly gig in that place and that, now there's nothing. Other things have gotten really easy. It's much easier to record yourself now without spending a lot of money. It's a lot easier to communicate all over the world without spending a lot of money to get in touch with people that like my music without like fucking around on the phone and stuff you know I talk to a lot of especially indie rock bands who and they all tell me it's kind of headed in the same direction where people just don't really come out to shows I don't know how much of it is their particular audience you know aging out I mean these are bands that have around for you know 10-15 years and that generation of music fans are all having kids so maybe they're not going out on a weeknight but the consensus seems to be that people just aren't going out and watching music the way they used to I think it's always been kind of difficult to rely on the people and sometimes when I go somewhere I'm surprised how few people come other times though there are places where like a lot of young people are going out to gigs and stuff it's funny you know I was compared to uh, stand-up comedy where people will go people will just pick a you know Saturday night and go see comedy regardless of who's performing I got the impression that maybe that you know was the case more with folk music at its height and you know people still i guess will go see jazz for the sake of seeing jazz but i might interrupt i would say one of the biggest culprits for that is dj culture because people just want to hear somewhat updated iterations of what they know they like and there's it's almost if you have some popular dj it's almost understood they're going to get paid more than a band and almost every place i play in brooklyn as of someone who lives here on if you play on a thursday friday or saturday your show has to be over by 11 or midnight at the latest so you can move out and load out for the DJ to come in so they can make their real money. That's kind of been going on for a long time. It's DJ culture, you know, and it's uh, people are way less. I, I think a sense of discovery is lacking because, I mean, when I was a kid, I'm 38, uh, and I grew up in a small town in Reedsville, North Carolina. I discovered the music I discovered because it happened to wash up on my weird redneck little island. So that's the punk rock, the jazz, you know. Now everything's at the tip of your fingers so that you take it for granted that you can find whatever you want. So there's less of an idea of discovery. I'm going to go out and maybe see this band that I've never heard of. It's more like I'm going to go out and see what I know I like and try to get laid. I think it's connected. The club scene, because of the expense of maintaining a venue and having a liquor license, they always have to think about making a lot of money. And this disco thing is a winner for them because of, you know, people running around like that and dancing around. They're going to drink a lot. And, you know, they get a lot of people. It's the kind of people, they see a line outside the, the, the place, everybody wants to get in the line, you know. It's driven creative music into other situations. Yeah. Most people never liked playing in bars or clubs that much anyway. So, you know, you have this uh, huge like, house concert thing going on everywhere in the world, you know. And just always, like, right from the beginning, because uh, a lot of the music I was doing was like, oh, you couldn't dance to it, or they didn't want it in a bar. We'd be playing an art gallery. We'd be playing a, that's a common conversation when someone says, what kind of venue yeah. are you looking for? I'm like, well, anywhere where we can get the people that are interested in me in the area to come sit and enjoy the music, you know? 
I said it can be anything. Have you found that in, in recent years, has, has it impacted the number of people? Has it been pretty steady for you over the years? It's up and down. Yeah, it sounds like it ebbs and flows almost from, from show to show. I mean, on the average now, I take more people now than ever before. But. How do people find your music these days? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, obviously, you can find everything on the Internet if you yeah. know what to look. How they get into it um, in, in the first place, yeah. I mean, they're not playing it on the radio a lot or anything. That's how I got it. Everything I heard it on the yeah. radio. The, your historical connections with people, at least up here. I mean, I discovered Eugene because luckily I could go see him play for free where I grew up. The first, yeah. the first time we played together was in a recording studio, and he said, "You know, your guitar style is really complimentary to mine." And I was like, "Well, I've been ripping you off since I was 17." You know, but I think up here, the people I know in the experimental music scene yeah. that I'm peers with, when they hear I play with Eugene, they're like, "Wow, it's amazing!" Like, yeah, it is amazing but they're particularly drawn to his pioneering combinations of music in certain contexts like the loft jazz scene the john zorn scene i think it's like very much a historical con connectivity to sort of the new school avant-garde jazz and noise scene up here that's connected to an educational system that's a certain you know i have a lot of respect for eugene there's a lot of word of mouth too I think the way people find out about stuff. Or Even if you're playing to small audiences all the time, if you move around all around, after a while it adds up to a lot of people. I'm amazed sometimes what I'm drawing on at this point, generations of people. People that saw me when they yeah. were in college, people that bring their kids to see me, people who's like, uh, oh, I heard you, You're, my dad has your record. That's just, This is what I'm working with now is pretty encouraging. It's like a multi-generational thing. Young people really like to see the shows. It's not like it doesn't appeal to them. Yeah, sometimes just the whole trick is getting people to know about it and getting them engaged. And it still makes economic sense for you to, to tour? I can't really find any other way to make <laughs> to make a decent amount of money. And sometimes, sometimes I do really well. Well, I also do really well in other places, too. Especially playing solo, owning all the rights to most of my music and selling it all. But it's the live shows that really well, you make most of your money at? It's a combination, though. I yeah. sell a lot of material at the live shows, so... That's like a way, a way to distribute the material without dealing with any other right into the hands of people. I have to assume, though, it's getting harder and harder for you to, to tour, for you to you know get in a band and, and ride around the country. At one point when I had the Jack and Jim show with Jimmy Carl Black, I felt like I should help this older man. That's what I should give back because this music, yeah. they'd given me so much, like with the Mothers of Invention and everything. So I was like, this guy, at this point, this guy, when I started playing with him, he was in his 50s, right? And I think I was in my 30s. So I was like, I can take care of this guy and help him make some money, etc. When I got to be in my 50s, I'm kind of like, who's going to do this for me? <laughs> so... But I do make connections, like this whole thing, you know, I can't say I'm grateful. I'm cooking up with Jim and the Sunwatchers. Yeah. It's like a really fun project, and it's nice to be around a lot of younger people with good good energy. Gene was a huge influence on me, so was, this is a great honor for me. It's a similar vibe, I think. And just to speak to the idea that music being really accessible in a good way is because the thing that blew me away about Eugene's playing and approach to music was that nothing was off limits it was just if you liked it and i think that's what's really influential about it is because you know you can listen to his record with frank lowe and it'll melt the paint off your wall and then you can hear him cover hank snow you know what i mean and so it's really warm and inviting music but also yeah i mean it's a huge influence on me because i grew up around there and there was nothing and there was like no you know ensconced sense of culture or 
the otherness to yeah. latch onto, and so you found whatever you found. And luckily, near where I grew up was Eugene Chadbourne playing for free at the coffee shop, playing Albert Eiler sets, which is how I heard Albert Eiler. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that. So it really is important to continue that on. You know, to, to continue that attitude of openness and otherness for younger people to experience, because without it, you know, we're sunk without that support, without spreading that idea of support. It's kind of a blessing and a curse, though, having such a diverse catalog because it's i mean in a way you're asking a lot from people to hang on with you through the different phases of music i don't know i mean i never ask anybody i mean people just some people do yeah i, I mean some people there's some people that really follow it and, and um other people kind of you know noodle in and out every now yeah. and then i don't really I, you know i know what it's like i i have you know periods i don't listen to anything i'm the i i like to go out to concerts but Sometimes I, sometimes I don't, even when I've planned to. I mean, it's just... At least once a month in New York, I hear music or go see somebody or something comes through that I neglect. I opt out of because, you know, I don't feel like going out, but that Eugene is connected to. And that's not, that's not for nothing, you know. And so the renown and the respect follows that. Richard Bishop was here last week. Made a record with Richard Bishop. You go see... I still play with him sometimes. Yeah, I try to keep up all these connections. All these right. people are really interesting. Yeah. You know? I asked this guy... We lose some of them sometimes. Right, like sure. John's, Jimmy, right. you know, but... Um... I was talking to this clarinet player I was recruiting for. He plays in Berlin a lot, Patrick Holmes, and he's playing the show with us on Wednesday. He's going to be playing with us. He's a great improviser. Anyway, I was like, hey, man, I'd like you to come play with Eugene. You know, I think it'd be really cool. He's like, that... Don't Punk Out is my favorite record of all time. That's really funny. You know what I mean? So it's just like music finds footholds in a lot of yeah. different tastes and a lot of different communities. I think it's really important. Are you happy? I mean, do you feel like your level of success right now is, is where you'd like to be? Oh, I would like to have more money in the bank, man. <laughs> it's a hustle. But I uh, things happen for a reason. I mean, I'm supposed to be out here doing this, and I get better in the process of doing it. Yeah. And so the other thing, yeah, I mean, it always works out. And compared to what a lot of people have to do i don't when i start complaining i sort of feel like well i shouldn't complain I mean, you could complain endlessly about sure. places like north carolina you know yeah. The, uh, yeah i don't know if you remember hearing about the bathroom law yep. you know okay yeah, so like bruce yeah. springsteen cancels this weekend in greensboro because of this which cost the city like a hundred thousand yeah. dollars in lost revenue etc etc and i was like well good for him but i'm like why doesn't he boycott north carolina because they they want musicians to play for free unless they're playing somewhere like the coliseum and they're yeah. a superstar you know it's like cause there's no union you know there's just and a lot of places are like that because of the music scene the club scene being dominated by college kids that'll play for free or just it's like people will play music for free people will rent places to play music so that because people really like to play music but it's like guys that are chefs they really like to to be chefs. I've never met a guy that's a chef that I hate this. Why am I doing it? They everybody does this. People do a lot of things because they like it. But it's like there's certain professions they want you to do it for free. Yeah. I was joking with this plumber friend of mine that always comes to hear me play, and we're talking about. It. I said, I said, he said, what's the music business like? I said, well, the music business is like is when you go to fix a toilet, they don't they want you to play for free. Yeah. <laughs> or a lot of good see what donations <laughs> come in or something. Yeah. So that's that's tough, but um, basically, when you you know when 
you have as many people around the world that know what you're up to that I do or people that really like what I do. I don't really need a, some big thing to happen. I, if I can find a small place to get these people and they and they a lot of them support me by they like buying the CDs and stuff. They like listening to them. It's not like charity. No, I get by pretty I get by okay, you know. By some years I do really well. You do because it's something you love to do, but also at the same time maybe you couldn't do anything else. Well, I had a reasonable uh, career in, yeah. in journalism. I actually worked at a daily paper. I worked my way yeah. up to editor. I mean, I'm glad I left that business because it went to hell. You yeah. know? So um, I don't know if the music business is faring that much better, though. No, and I mean, I could be a teacher or yeah. something like that. But that's also, it's like I've watched these other professions, like the type of benefits and the, and the kind of... Uh, tenure and stuff like my dad has a prof as a professor it's really hard to get now and all the people that i know that go into academics i mean I always have the same conversation oh i wish i had that like regular paycheck and they were like eugene you wouldn't like this you'd have to go to all these goddamn meetings i don't have time to practice and i'm like if i don't have time to practice i'm not interested yeah. in life michael parker that was his was, i studied writing in greensboro with novelist michael parker particularly and his that was he was very generous open-handed, amazingly uh, present teacher who resented every second of it because it kept him from writing. But, you know, you can't pay your bills by selling your novels, even if they're on Penguin or whatever. It's really sad. I don't mean that you're physically unable to do anything else, but that you, you couldn't not play music. At this stage, I would rather play music, you know, and I also can't really conceive of any other way to make a lot of yeah. money with my, now with my skills. And now, I, you know, I have musical people that I'm involved with that have clear professions where they're getting paid a lot of money. Computer programming is one that comes to mind right away. Um, contractors, various businesses people are in and also play music. You know, that's that's really common. But I can't, I've never really done anything where, I was making a lot of money writing for the all music guide mm. at one point. Yeah. You know, every now and then, you know, writing you can make doing fair, music journalism. fair money, yeah, but that's another. That's even worse oh, that's than music. Now, it's even worse than music. Yeah. I mean, they've been getting paid for, for writing. So. But one thing that's really nice about, you know, playing music, you can go out most nights, play music, and get paid a bunch of cash. <laughs> and that's, you know, yeah. other jobs I do, they're sending money to my bank, this or that. But there's a lot of nights where I'm getting paid in cash. And there's something kind of really easy going about that. That's nice. You still enjoy it? Oh, yeah. I really, well, you know, I, uh, on a given night... You know, like, there's parts of the night that I absolutely hate. <laughs> you know, the technical setup, dealing with everything in a crowded, dark place. It's sometimes so chaotic, yeah. it just makes me want to go out of my mind. And I can't believe I actually can get up and play. Other times, it's just so easy going, the whole thing. And the treatment is so nice and everything that... It's just very comfortable, but sometimes I even think these horrible gigs really make you play great, yeah. you know. I mean, it takes a working class heart, you know? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I get really tired of listening to people talk shit to me, talk about their projects yeah. and everything they're doing, or some drunken guy telling me the same thing over and over yeah. again. I mean, these are the things on a night after night that irritate me to the point where I just want to be alone. I love yeah. going to different places and, 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 and actually seeing what life is like in different countries and what people are thinking about and so you know when someone says to me oh i bet europeans think i'm like wait a minute there's no such thing as europeans sure. thinking a certain very way. large place what country are yeah. you talking about what part of that country yeah. you know or then and then it's like i could tell you what some people say but there's a lot of different opinions about things and so 
So that's good. You know, I feel like I get to, to, to see a lot of things. I yeah. get to see a lot of the world. So, and that's worth a lot. And all the people, you know, one of my gr- uh, daughter's boyfriends that was doing a kind of post-high school travel, mm-hmm. I gave him some names of people that were, you know, said, oh, we'll put them up, you yeah. know, and then, and I, he said to, he said, I told my dad, he says, Mr. Chadbourne might not have a lot of money, but his address book is worth a million dollars. <laughs> There you go. That was Eugene Chadbourne with a special appearance by Jim McHugh of the Sunwatchers, who's been playing around town with him. Thanks to both of them for taking the time to do that. Recorded that one at a diner in Williamsburg after Eugene read some excerpts from his book, The Dreamery, a 1,000-page paperback that you can buy over at his site, a combination memoir and dream diary. Thanks so much, Jim, for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. And I think that's about it for this week, so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.